Today's podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit DavenantHall.com and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. But you see that shift towards what one theologian called the passion for truth to the passion for souls. Now that, I think, is going to have deleterious consequences in the 19th century. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dalzell. James how are you today? I know you've been looking forward to this conversation and your family is, this is the the one maybe podcast that we do that they'll listen to. Yes, that's it. My my wife will listen to this one and so will my father who have, who have both read through the volume so far. Today we talk about the fifth and uh, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled and excited uh, with uh, the author and the book that we're talking about. Right. So our guest then is the one and only Nick Needham, who has just finished uh, volume five of 2000 Years of Christ's Power. It is uh, about to be published, about to appear. Uh, you can you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. But uh, volume five deals with it, it, the subtitle is The Age of Enlightenment and Awakening. So essentially, it's the 18th century. Nick, thanks for joining us today to talk about this. That's uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, Nick, I wanted to begin with our own, at least from an American point of view, perspective on the 18th century, which has a lot to do with the American Revolution and from a religious perspective with the Great Awakening. And you deal with the Great Awakening and to some extent with the American Revolution. But one of the things that your book shows us is that there was a lot more going on than that. So how did how did you look at this century and determine what to include and what to exclude, because you 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 include some things that I was almost completely unfamiliar with. Well, I, I pursued the same strategy, really, as I've been following, at least since volume three and the Reformation, which is I, I break things down by theme. So I, I always want to look at uh, the Reformed tradition, the Lutheran tradition, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism. And then in a geographical sense, I always feel some kind of strange obligation to look at England and Scotland. I don't know why that is. but uh, So there are separate treatments of England and Scotland. And then when you get into the 18th century, I felt there's no, there's no way of avoiding giving a separate geographical treatment of America. So for the first time, that happens. So that means it breaks down into seven rather chunky chapters uh, looking at those things. And I discovered things, too, that I, I hadn't been aware of before, particularly when I was looking at uh, the areas outside my own immediate familiarity, uh, particularly Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Maybe we could go to that. Orthodoxy is treated near the end of the volume, but not, yes. not feeling compelled to take it in order. What surprised you? What is going on in, like, say, Russian Orthodoxy in the 18th mm. century? Because for, for those of us in uh, in sort of the the Anglo American world, that is uh, a faraway land, almost non-existent uh, in any kind of past imagination. Uh, yeah. And so, what what should we what should we be aware of uh, that's going? On? Do they have something analogous to our Great Awakening? Is there anything so dramatic going on uh, in Orthodoxy at that time? There is. 
um, something analogous to the Great Awakening in Greece. Uh, there's a figure called Cosmos of Etolia, who, when you look at his life and work, he's essentially the John Wesley of Eastern Orthodoxy. So he's preaching uh, loosely uh, throughout what we know as Greece. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people are flocking to hear his sermons. And not only does he do that, but afterwards he then organizes converts into small groups so that they can continue to meet and continue to nurture the flame uh, that he awakened in their hearts by his preaching. Um, he had a huge impact in that, I suppose, somewhat limited area. I mean, you know, Greece isn't the whole of the Eastern Orthodox world, but within those those confines, an enormous impact. His memory is still treasured uh, even today. And until I did the research for this volume, I must confess, I was completely unaware of the man. But he, he certainly is extremely impressive. If you look at the larger world of Russian Orthodoxy, I would say that um, the one thing that really stands out for me in the 18th century is the, the enormous impact that Lutheranism had on Orthodoxy. So I particularly looked at, this isn't the only figure I looked at, Tikhon of Zadonsk, um, who's kind of the great devotional writer uh, in the Russian Orthodox world in the 18th century. And it's abundantly clear from his life that he was vastly influenced by Lutheran pietism, particularly by Johann Arndt, who is often called the, the father or the grandfather, perhaps, of pietism in the Lutheran tradition. Um, Arndt wrote this extremely significant seminal treatise called True Christianity. Now, that was translated into Russian, and Tikhon read it and was kind of bowled over by it. And when he wrote his own devotional masterpiece, he called it True Christianity. And you can see the huge impact that Arndt has had on him. There's a quotation I quite like, um, a Russian noble uh, regarded Tikhon as his spiritual director and asked him about his spiritual reading. And Tikhon's reply was, every morning and night, read the Bible and aren't. You don't need to read anything else. So here's this colossal figure in the Russian Orthodox tradition telling the people who follow his spiritual direction, read this great Lutheran, read the Bible and read this, this father of pietism. Uh, now, I, found, I, I, I did know about Tikhon. I didn't know about Cosmos. But I didn't know, I suppose I hadn't fully appreciated the sheer depth and extent of Lutheran influence on Tikhon. And I tracked down a very interesting quotation, and I had a friend of mine look at the original Russian, so this is correct, where Tikhon quite frankly teaches justification by faith alone in a very Lutheran manner. So you've got, you've got this remarkable confluence of Lutheran and ortho Orthodox traditional influence in the person of Tikhon, which I think makes him the outstandingly fascinating character in 18th century orthodoxy. And, and Nick, with respect to the, the Great Awakening and the figures that are most familiar to us from the 18th century, at least at least here in the United States, most familiar, yeah. was is your evaluation of that period um, overall a positive one? Uh, do you see these developments as, as positive developments, or are they... Uh, uh, steps on the the descent from orthodox reform teaching yes that's a that's a very pertinent question uh overall my impression of the great awakening is positive 
I've no reason to doubt these great preachers like the Tenants and, and Edwards and Isaac Bacchus and so on. There's no reason to doubt in my mind that the Spirit truly anointed their preaching and that multitudes were truly brought to Christ. So in that sense, this was a, a mighty work of God uh, in America. Um, I do have one kind of, I suppose it is a serious reservation, which is that for some of the leading thinkers of the awakening, their interpretation of what was going on all around them led them to the conclusion, which I think is, is very wrong. Now, you know, I might be opening myself up here to a counter critique. So, I mean, feel free to come back at me, but it led them to think, and I'm, I'm here, I'm citing Jonathan Edwards here, the purpose of church gatherings is the conversion of sinners. Now, I don't think that's the purpose of church gatherings in a primary sense at all, maybe not even in a secondary sense. Uh, I think the purpose of church gatherings is to worship the triune God. But you see that shift towards what one theologian called the passion for truth to the passion for souls. Now, that, I think, is going to have deleterious consequences in the 19th century. Nick, you also, in discussing some of the awakeners, uh, as you call them, yeah. also give some fairly straightforward assessment of their character beyond their notoriety uh, in preaching and their manifest instrumentality in leading many to Christ. Uh, maybe to say, um, you also do lift up the hem of the garment and look at the feet of clay uh, of some of these men. Um, what are some, what are things that readers should be aware of, even just with regard, we tend to be a little hagiographic, I think, particularly Jonathan and I lived many years in Pennsylvania. I lived five minutes away from the tenant house. I mean, this was for Presbyterians, this was almost pilgrimage level, you know, importance. Uh, but what should we make of the awakeners, uh, as men more comprehensively? Well, as individuals, they were, uh, a very multifarious bunch with with all kinds of strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think the two, the two, if I can take it a little bit more generically, the two things that really stood out for me, first of all, was the tremendous tendency within awakened religion in America, this is Presbyterian and everything, towards splits and schisms. Um, the awakening was not a force for unity. It was a force that divided churches, divided congregations, divided entire traditions. And I hadn't fully appreciated the extent to which that was the case. And, and in some American states, it even precipitated uh, a rather barbaric persecution of dissenters. America is not yet the land of liberty and toleration. You know, I'm a Baptist, and many of my Baptist forefathers were very grievously persecuted by Congregationalists in New England for their Baptistic stance. The feet of clay that are most obviously exposed, and lots of people are doing it today, is the attitude that many of the Awakeners took towards black slavery, because many of them either owned slaves, or they weren't particularly bothered by the institution, Whereas others actually were quite outspoken uh, against black slavery, um, particularly uh, in, in the American context, I think of, uh, what's his first name? Is it Samuel Hopkins? 
who spawned this whole Hopkinsian tradition, extremely outspoken uh, against black slavery. But his voice was not the prevailing voice. And, and so you get um, quite a lot of the American awakeners actually owning slaves. Uh, Jonathan Edwards owned a few. George Whitfield is notorious for having employed slaves in his orphanage at Bethesda. And there's a great Methodist awakener called Devereux Jarrett in the South who owns slavery and so on and so forth. And I felt that that was so significant that I had to include a separate section, which I think I just called a word about slavery, uh, to look at the the thing in itself and the historian's attitude towards it. When we shift gears, Nick, and come over to England and Scotland, which, as you mentioned, yeah. is is uh, something is a region that you understandably deal with in in some detail what what are some of the major movements in the 18th century that uh, listeners uh, might not be aware of or or perhaps might have some passing familiarity with that changed the the landscape so to speak the church landscape in the british isles this is specifically within the context of revival you mean yeah well it's quite interesting in scotland which which is where i live and work where Contrary to all expectation, it was not the evangelical dissenting bodies, the Presbyterians who, for evangelical reasons, had broken away from the Church of Scotland. It was not among them that the revival flourished. So they invited Whitfield, once he'd begun to become well-known in England as a preacher, they invited him to come up and preach in Scotland and almost immediately fell out with him. Uh, on the grounds that he wouldn't restrict his preaching to them. These are the men of the first secession, as it's called, the seceders. Uh, They said that Whitfield ought to limit his preaching to them because they were the Lord's people in Scotland. So you get this incredible narrow-mindedness, I think. And Whitfield's response, which I kind of admire, was that, well, if, if you are the Lord's people in Scotland, it's really those who aren't the Lord's people who need my preaching. Thank you very much. So I'll go and preach to them. And so there was a complete breach with the seceders. And they then, they then denounced the whole revival as just mere hysteria. Uh, if you go to England, um, you get a similar thing within my own Reformed Baptist tradition, which is that within the first, in the first generation of the revival, most they weren't called Reformed Baptists in those days. They were called Particular Baptists from the you know Particular Redemption. The great majority of them denounced the revival. They shunned it and would have nothing to do with it. Um, and it's only when you get towards the end of the 18th century that they begin to change their mind, uh, largely, I think, under the impact of Andrew Fuller, uh, who I think was England's greatest theologian uh, in the 18th century. Um, you've got, of course, uh, John Wesley's Arminianism, um, which we, uh, as reformed people, you know, we kind of think, what's going on here? How, how can this man be simultaneously such a militant Arminian, and yet so evidently used by God? Uh, his his movement, I think, is, you know, genuinely anointed of, of God, and multitudes were converted under the preaching of the, of the Wesleyan uh, revivalists. And I partly just say, well, this is the sovereignty of God. God can use whoever he pleases. He can use those who don't even fully understand his sovereignty. And then also partly, though, I think that 
in the case of the Arminian movement in England, I mean, it was basically an English movement. It never really took off in Wales or Scotland. It's a kind of Arminianism, which is rather different to what we see in the evangelical world today, uh, in that Wesley did actually believe in the doctrine of total depravity. And he argued that human freedom to respond to the gospel is a supernatural gift of grace. So he wasn't arguing, he wasn't arguing man is free by nature. We have this kind of Pelagian free will, which, which I'm afraid is rather prevalent uh, among today's Arminians. And then you've got all the, the various new denominations that emerge uh, in the context of the revival in England and Wales. So in England, you have two new denominations being birthed out of the revival, one Calvinistic and the other Arminian. So the Calvinistic denomination was the Countess of Huntingdon's connection. The Countess of Huntingdon was an English female aristocrat who used her wealth and influence to, to patronize revival preachers. And she built uh, you know, hundreds of chapels for them, which became centers of revival preaching. Uh, but eventually the law forced her to register these chapels as places of dissenting worship as not being any longer under the umbrella of the Church of England. So you've got this new uh, reform denomination coming into existence, the Countess of Huntington's connection, which actually still does exist today, although it's much smaller than it used to be. And the other one, of course, is Wesley's own uh, Methodist societies, which as long as Wesley was alive, functioned within the Church of England, but almost as soon as he left this scene, as, as soon as he departed into glory, they collectively broke away from their parent denomination and became a separate church. So you then have the separate history of the English Methodist Church. And a very similar thing happened in Wales. Um, just as the 18th century goes into the 19th, you get the whole body of Welsh Methodists also breaking away from Anglicanism. And so their influence from that point onwards exists within the setting of a different denomination, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists. Methodism in Wales was Calvinistic rather than uh, Arminian. Uh, in Scotland, you don't really get that. Uh, in Scotland, it was really the Church of Scotland. It was the national church that became the great repository of revival influence. And what happened there was that there was a massive resurgence of an evangelical party within the established national church. Uh, that, that was a little bit unique to Scotland, though, I think. D does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, more than answers it. It's, it's uh, you know, and I, and I think even as you were answering, it's it's a reminder of the fact that there it's not a straightforward and simple story that that some of these events had a, a number of implications and, and, and there were streams that came out of them that were uh, flowing in in different directions. I, yeah. I wonder, Nick, Nick, as you as you reflect on your work in the 18th century and you're reading in the 18th century, you've talked in the past about your love for reading the church fathers and from for, yeah. for uh, kind of swimming in that in that pool, so to speak. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. the Reformation uh, highly significant in your own thinking, but w did you did you come away with a greater appreciation for some of these figures in the 18th century, or were you sort of ready to to get past it and to move on to uh, uh, to something else? That's interesting, um, and I actually, I've made this remark somewhere uh, in the volume. Maybe it's in the introduction that the 18th century 
is not the century of great theologians. Um, I can only really think of three theologians who I would regard as genuinely, in any sense, great in the 18th century. That's your own Jonathan Edwards, of course. He has to be one of them. Uh, and then in England, we've got Andrew Fuller and John Gill, who interestingly were both uh, Reformed Baptists. So for some reason, it was the Reformed Baptists in England who rose to the challenge uh, of producing great theology. But it's not it's not a century of great theologians. And in that, in that respect, it, it's so very different from the 17th century and from the 16th century and from the age of the early church fathers. Now, I can't account for this. I don't know why you seem to have this dearth of uh, theologians of, of stature in the context of the evangelical revival, the Great Awakening. But my impression is that, well, you know, that's just what happened for some reason. And then when you get into the 19th century, suddenly everything changes and you've got towering theologians, um, particularly actually in America. Uh, I think the 19th century is America's golden age of theologians. Um, and again, why should that happen? I don't know. The spirit blows wherever it listeth uh, or something like that. Uh, but yeah, the 18th century, not a great theological century. The 19th century, absolutely bursting with theological life. And the story, especially of the 18th century, is a story of great activity, uh, missions as well. Is this is this sort of the modern mission approach to missions uh, gets a second wind, or does it um, does it? How does that factor into your account? Well, you do have uh, Protestant missionary movements in the 18th century, um, but they are mostly German. Um, the two great missionary forces in the 18th century were German pietism from within the Lutheran tradition, and then the Moravians. Uh, the Moravians is, a, is another story in itself. Um, actually, they were the first to experience the fire of revival, the so-called Moravian Pentecost in the 1720s, which preceded by a whole decade what then happened in England Wales and America, uh, and out of that Moravian revival was was birthed a, a literally worldwide missionary movement. So you do have missionary movement going on in the 18th century, but it, it's largely German in inspiration. Uh, although I suppose you could argue that when you get various people coming over from Europe to settle in America, there is a kind of missionary dimension to that. Uh, you know, like. Lots of Dutch Reformed coming over to, to settle in the New World, and they bring their religion with them. I'm not sure that that really fits into the kind of missionary paradigm that I'm thinking of. Um, you have to get to the end of the 18th century before you begin to get a, you, you begin to get a, a whole swathe of new missionary organizations being founded, certainly in England, which then sent out missionaries here, there and everywhere. So you get you get Baptist mission, you, you get Anglican mission, you get Congregationalist mission. But for some reason, that's kind of delayed until the end of the 18th century. So I didn't particularly cover it in this volume. I thought, no, we'll leave that until the 19th century when they actually begin to make their impact. Nick, there, there are so many other topics we could cover, but I want to cover one more that I think will be familiar to our listeners. Could you speak a little bit about uh, Roman Catholicism during this time and particularly the French Revolution? Yeah, well, I, I think the French Revolution is the dawn of modernity. Um, 
ever since the conversion of Constantine, Europe has been controlled by what's, what historians call the throne and altar alliance. That alliance is shattered in France by the French Revolution. And very quickly after 1789, the first year of the revolution, the French revolutionaries turned militantly anti-Christian. And you get this massive bloodthirsty persecution of the Roman Catholic Church uh, throughout France, which interestingly made Protestant countries much more sympathetic than they had been previously to Roman Catholicism, as they saw this happening, uh, notably in Britain. And it wasn't only Roman Catholics, French Protestants, the Huguenots, they were also pretty savagely persecuted by the French revolutionaries uh, because they wanted to enthrone either deism or atheism as the kind of the state religion. And I, I would say France and Europe just never recovered from what happened there. Uh, the throne and altar alliance was in principle broken. And so you now have the dawn of secularism, which, which spills out into all the other countries of Europe eventually. And so, for example, in 1848, the year of revolutions, where in almost every European capital, you have a French revolution style uprising uh, against the established order. Um, in France itself, I think something particularly for people uh, to look at is the um, the war in this region of France called the Vendée, where the French revolutionary armies were so unbelievably savage in their persecution of Catholics, and they particularly targeted women. They wanted to kill Catholic women because women were the bearers of children and they didn't want them to bear enemies of the revolution. Uh, they looked upon the revolution as the regenerator of mankind. So, you know, Roman Catholicism, Christianity, that's a false idea of how mankind is going to be regenerated. It's the revolution that will regenerate the human race. And so we've got to destroy all enemies of human regeneration. And that means the church. Well, Nick, there's so much more we could discuss, but thank you for giving us your time here. And thank you for your labors in this uh, fifth volume. And we await volume six and further work from you as well. So thanks. Thanks very much. God bless you. James, I knew when our, the first person we covered in our survey of the 18th century was Cosmos of Ayatolia. I knew I knew this was going to be a great conversation. It always is with Nick Needham. And and you know, we 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 give our honest opinion to our listeners, and it is it is the case that our honest opinion is this these are the volumes you need to read uh it went if you want to study church history. First, that's classic Nick Needham. Uh, just go to someone you've never heard of who was massively important in a region of the world you know little about. I mean that, and that actually encapsulates what I think makes these volumes, all five of them now, uh, so profitable. Is when he calls it two thousand years of Christ's power. He really does the research on where the gospel is and those places that are really foreign and unknown to us, not just distant. Uh, geographically, but but distant in terms of the historical events and personalities that were used of the Lord. Jonathan, you and I have said this before. I've said this, I think perhaps the last time we interviewed Nick. Um, I have seen Nick's volumes in arm's reach on the desk of more than one church history professor. I won't name names, but it, it literally is go-to work for those teaching. 
but more than that, uh, this has also been a book, these books, these volumes, and I anticipate volume five will be the same that have been the go-to work for many laymen who aren't professors of church history or aren't who wouldn't fancy themselves academics, but want to know what's been going on uh, since the end of the New Testament until now, and want to know more than just maybe perhaps the Protestant Reformation. Um, I think we can unequivocally say, if you want to know church history, begin here and just marinate in it. I would say that. They're very accessible. Uh, very learned. He he researches in great detail. Um, and, and yet, unlike some church history volumes that you'll encounter, he, he is thoroughly Christian. He he is unapologetic about saying things like the Lord was sovereignly at work or this was sinful. And yet, that that's married to this really sophisticated analysis and yet presentation that's quite clear. So I don't know anything else like like these volumes and it really would be the starting place and it, and it for scholars if you're going to teach church history go to these books but also if you're just interested in learning about what God has done in the history of the church and want uh, a clear and I would say authoritative in many respects um analysis of them Go, go to need him. So I don't know how else to say it, but these are books worth owning and and worth spending time reading. Well, and he and he's he's remarkable as a sympathetic historian who yes. is not primarily interested to score points off of the you know theologians with whom he disagrees, but really to understand them in their context and what they were about, where they were, when they were there. Uh, and I think this is really the value of it that this is not uh, a sort of cheap history that stands wagging a scoldy finger um, at various traditions, even though he, even though his own convictions are clearly enough stated, uh, there's also a, a, a dispassionate and winsome kind of scholarship that just runs through the volume. He pra- perhaps you even picked up vibes of that uh, in the conversation we had with Nick. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And so if you're interested in entering to potentially win a copy of 2000 Years of Christ Power Volume 5, you can go to placefortruth.org and click on the Theology on the Go link. There's a space there for you to enter your information. We have a couple of copies to give away, but uh, I would also just uh, commend our listeners to go out and purchase this volume. And if you haven't read any uh, Needham up to this point, start in Volume 1 and work your way up to Volume 5. It'll be worth your while to do so. Uh, for for listeners, we are grateful for you. We love hearing from you. We we enjoy getting your suggestions and feedback. Please keep sending that. If you're able to rate and review the podcast, wherever it is that you download it, please do that as well and pass it along to others. If you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, uh, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And from James and I to all our listeners, uh, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, 
Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses, including two degree programs and PhD supervision. Students can be enrolled at any time during the academic year. Still, in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, so Davenant Hall hosts regular residentials at the Davenant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2023 classes running April to June is now open, closing March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class, with a two-hour Zoom class with expert professors each week. Classes include a biblical theology of the sexes with Alistair Roberts, the Reformation in the Modern World with Brad Littlejohn, and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more and DavenantInstitute.org for an even broader perspective. DavenantHall.com